This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley and it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. We've got some absolute treats coming for you on the podcast this week. Later in the week, we'll bring you the politics of the boring quiz, quiz of the year. Uh, we'll have the panto. And throughout this week, instead of the columnist panel, we've got a very special Times columnist focus group. James Johnson does our normal uh, focus groups sat down with loads of our regular Times panellists to ask them what they think about this year in politics, what they think about Christmas, all that sort of stuff. Uh, so we'll do that in just a moment. The main thing on the podcast today is everyone in Westminster seems to be writing a book. Cleo Watson, uh, one of Boris Johnson's former aides, is the latest to write a thriller, which is out next year. So what does it take to write a political thriller? I asked Michael Dobbs, who created House of Cards, uh, Edwina Curry, former MP, written loads of books, and Robert Peston, political journalist, uh, who's now working on his second thriller. Uh, so that's coming up in just a sec. But first, we kick off with our very first Times Columnist festive focus group. The Columnists on Times Radio. I feel like we need to put some Christmas jingle jangles on there. Yeah, in the in the run up to Christmas, uh, we thought we'd round up all of our favourite columnists and stick them in a focus group. So it's James Johnson, who does our normal Times Radio focus groups, former pollster at number 10, uh, now from JL Partners. He's in the hot seat. Rachel Sylvester, Daniel Finkelstein, David Aronovich, Alice Thompson, James Marriott and Melanie Reed. Uh, he's grilling them on lots of things. What do they think about Christmas? Uh, well, David Ivanovich will do his usual rant about how much he hates Christmas films. We'll have that later in the week. But uh, we thought we'd start with politics. It's been quite a year, of course, for the Conservative Party. Uh, so let's just run through it month by month. In January, Partygate was, al- Partygate was already beginning to bite. Boris Johnson apologised for the House for the first... apologised for the Commons for the first time. And, of course, Tory MP Christian Wakeford defected to the Labour Party. Can I start by warmly welcoming the Honourable Member for Bury South to his new place? Then in February, we saw a batch of resignations from in Bo- within Boris Johnson's own team of advisers over this. This leader of the opposition, a former director of public prosecutions, Mr Speaker, he spent most of his time prosecuting journalists and failing to prosecute Jimmy Savile, as far as I can make out, Mr Speaker. Therefore, if that's all, several people leave number 10. Then in March, attention turned away from Westminster as Russia invaded Ukraine. In April, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak were issued with a fixed penalty notice by the police for the birthday party. And, of course, the Tory MP Neil Parrish resigned from the House of Commons after he was called, caught watching porn. 
I, um, funnily enough, it was tractors that I was looking at, and um, so I did get into another website um, that had a sort of very similar name, um, and I watched it for a bit, which I shouldn't have done. In May, Pretty Patel announced a plan to send migrants to Rwanda. And actually, some breaking news can bring you right now. The High Court has just ruled that the government plans to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda are lawful. Uh, some charities uh, and organisations have taken the government to court over the plans. Uh, and the High Court has just ruled that they are lawful. Also in May, Sue Gray finally published her report. Remember all of that? Boris Johnson survived all the way through to the end of June when Chris Pincher resigned as Deputy whip over, deputy Chief Whip over allegations of sexual misconduct. Turned out Boris Johnson hadn't been completely straight about what he had known and what he hadn't. It led to a tsunami of resignations. And by July, Boris Johnson was out. I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. <laughs> them's the breaks. The exciting leadership contest began that month and it dragged out at Snell's place through August... And then Liz Truss ended up beating Rishi Sunak and becoming Prime Minister in September. Because, my friends, I know that we will deliver, we will deliver, and we will deliver. <laughs> Still makes me laugh. At the end of that month, and after the period of mourning following the death of Elizabeth II, Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng delivered his emergency mini-budget, announcing the biggest tax cut since 1972. Mr Speaker, we're at the beginning of a new era. Uh, it was an era that didn't last very long. Liz Truss didn't make her first appearance at PMQs until mid-October, by which time the vast majority of the mini-budget had been cancelled. And then, by the end of October, she resigned. I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. A much shorter leadership contest this time round saw Boris Johnson attempt to come back before Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister, and those crazy few months came to an end. Until... Matt Hancock joined the cast of I'm a Celebrity. What I'm really looking for is a bit of forgiveness. So the year ends with strikes across several industries, sky-high energy bills and high inflation, Labour 20 points ahead in the polls. Despite all of that, looking back on 2022, the Tories might still feel a bit of relief that things have calmed down. So what did our columnist festive focus group make of it all? James Johnson asked them to sum up the year for the Conservative Party in a word or two, starting with Danny Finkelstein. Angry and vindicated angry because you know being a conservative i just found the inability of the party to provide stable and um uh, stable government that had showed integrity and competence to be outrageous and embarrassing um and um vindicated because for 10 to 15 years i've been arguing that uh, it wouldn't work to try to do massive unfunded tax cuts and um, this didn't seem to be winning the day. And uh, I always thought it would lead to disaster in these particular circumstances. And it, when it did, that was vindicating. But I think the anger is stronger than the vindication. James, how would you sum up the year for the Conservatives? Yeah, I think, I think turbulent, which I think because it obviously was turbulent. I also think because, you know, a lot of the, a lot of what the Conservatives done that was dangerous this year was that they're, brand which was you know um competent government you know um getting on with things um unrisky has really been sort of upset by the chaos of boris the chaos of liz truss and i think you know at the end of this year with the kind of cost of living crisis with strikes i think it's that impression of turbulence that would probably be lingering and, and damaging to them alice i would say three prime ministers four chancellors and five education secretaries probably just i mean we've gone through the whole lot it must be a record 
for the Tories. Um, and it is exactly as James said, I think um, Morris Archer always had this thing that you could either be cruel and efficient, which the Tories should tended to be, or you could be kind and slightly hopeless, which is what Labour were. And I think the problem about the Tories is they're now cruel and inefficient. And I think that is an absolutely deadly combination for them. Um, so I think they've really blown it this year. And I think Rishi Sunak's probably helped a little bit, but not enough. Melanie? For me, it's been a year when the, the Conservatives have been living in, in a fantasy world. And I think it's best reflected in, in Boris Johnson's resignation speech, where there was no contrition, no humility, no, no apology. Um, it was that sense of, of uh, we're, we're still brilliant, we're, people still love us, and it wasn't true. Rachel? I think they're in a death spiral. And, um, you know, you had Boris Johnson breaking all the rules, doing loop-the-loops in the aeroplane, then Liz Truss kind of crashing down to earth in the economy, and Rishi Sunak's desperately trying to stabilise the aeroplane, but the MPs are leaping out left, right and centre, bailing out of the plane as it's kind of on this death spiral towards... The ground and it's Rishi Sunak I think as Alice has said has kind of stabilized things a little bit but the damage is so deep and profound uh, to their reputation that I think it's quite hard to see how they recover from it. David welcome how would you sum up the year 2022 for the Conservatives in a sentence or a few words? <laughs> we've had crashing planes, we've had uh, despair, we've had vindication, what, what, how would you sum it up? I mean it I, it really is hard to see anything in, other, uh, in any other terms than a kind of slow motion plane crash. Um, and not really that slow motion, actually. But quite a fast motion plane crash at various at various times. But, you know, it's one of these sort of strange things because it's been coming all the time. It's been coming at you bit by bit. Everybody's sentient said it was. And then it arrives and people say, oh, it's arrived. So we've got the general view there then of, 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 of Conservatives this year. What's one moment from 2022 that perhaps sums up best how you might feel about the Conservatives or what's the moment that best crystallises it from 2022? Being ambushed by a cake is really the, sort of what summed it up. <laughs> you could be taken off course by a cake and it was all the cake's fault. And that's really the Tory party now is they blame everyone else apart from themselves. The mini budget was the kind of tipping point really where they lost <laughs> that reputation for economic competence and they were, you know, the people who were trusted on the economy. And then you just had to look at all those graphs. And I think those graphs will stick in the voters' minds of everything going in the wrong direction. It was, uh, there were so many moments to pick from, but it was the moment when uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nadine Doris emerged from 10 Downing Street to, to claim that Liz Truss was a greater Brexiteer than either of them, even though she hadn't actually supported Brexit at all in the first place. And it indicated... Their, their view that Brexit was something that was kind of sort of vague and abstract. Uh, it was a sort of way of thinking uh, and a way of being that there was such a sort of thing as real Brexit, which differed from actual Brexit. Uh, and um, I think that that suggested two people who were really living a fantasy and uh, was pretty indicative of, of a of, of what I think happened this year, which was that um, the Conservative Party came crashing into reality, having lived for a long time outside reality, really. And um, and the, the, the uh, meeting of those two things has not been nice. Uh, to me, it was one of those mornings in early, in the first week of July, 
when Nadim Zahawi, I can't remember whether he'd just been made Chancellor of the Exchequer for a few hours, went on to um, the, one of the radio programmes uh, to talk about how Boris Johnson would survive, to be interrupted two minutes in, to be told that another series of ministers had resigned. And it's the, and, and that is a kind of genuinely, wonderfully dr dramatic moment. It's like that moment. There's, there's an old film called Taras Bulba, in which Yul Brynner plays a leading Cossack, and he's leading a revolt against the against everybody else. But he's only got a small band. But as he rides over the plane, another small band joins him, and then another small band joins him, and another. And the resignations of the Tory party were a bit like that, the kind of culmination, the gang together all in one day or two days of the collapse of a, not just of a government, but actually of a political power, party in power. And, and, and then, of course, it culminated in Matt Hancock on I'm a Celebrity, you know, which for me summed it. <laughs> was the perfect, you know, end to it. And that poor scorpion. You had to feel sorry for anything that Matt Hancock ate, didn't you, really? The thing that, um, <laughs> a sting in the tail there. The thing that really stuck with me is the very brief and really sort of horrible to watch press conference that Liz Truss gave in the aftermath of the mini budget when she's on stage and just looks like... It reminded me of when you watch, you know, your incompetent child get on stage in front of the entire school assembly to try and, you know, play the piano ineptly. And you're just thinking, oh my God, it's not going to make it to the end of this thing. And you sort of walked off as questions were still being shouted at her. And just something about that really, the sort of the tone of it was so much like, God, there's really, the people in charge really don't seem confident or in charge or, you know, there's just this real atmosphere of kind of chaos and absence of anyone who knows what's going on at the top in that little kind of chaotic moment after the mini budget. And that really sort of stuck out for me as a kind of remarkable thing to watch, you know, a, a British Prime Minister do. All the Times columnists there, and of course you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash box. Up next, we talk political thrillers. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. I don't know what you're doing. You're wandering around the bookshops, doing some last-minute Christmas shopping. And if you're listening to this show, there's a good chance you're going to be given a political novel. Seems like everyone who's ever worked at Westminster, whether an MP, a peer, a former advisor... Or even a political journalist seems to think they've got a book in them, whether we want it or not. And perhaps inevitably, they turn to the skullduggery, backbiting and high drama of SW1 for inspiration. But what makes a good novel set in Westminster? Do they have to be thrillers? And can anyone write one? We thought we'd speak to some people who've made a success of it. First, the former cabinet minister, Edwina Coey, who after publishing her diaries, wrote a string of best-selling novels 
And I asked her if being a politician gave her an advantage. Oh, I think it. I think it's an advantage if you have um, a bit of a reputation, perhaps, but you have to be good. The first one will sell. The second one, you need to have an audience. You need to have people saying, "Well, oh, I enjoyed that. Let's let's read the next one." If you can develop some kind of uh, franchises, where somebody like Michael Dobbs, who was not an MP but was chief of staff to Margaret Thatcher developed an extraordinary franchise and some wonderful novels, absolutely brilliant. And nobody remembers now that he ever worked in number 10. So it's possible, but you have to be good at it. I got taken out for lunch um, at the Ritz, if I remember rightly, a Savoy, somewhere like that, by a, a senior literary agent at the time, very distinguished chap. And he said, um, well, what are you planning to do now? And I said, what do you think I should do? And he said, oh, you're ready to write a novel. I said, what, me? Write a novel. And he said these immortal words. He said, oh, my goodness, Edwina, if Geoffrey Archer can write a novel, you can write a novel. <laughs> so Edwina Curry talked about her career as an author and referring to Michael Dobbs, who you'll, of course, know. Michael Dobbs, now Lord Dobbs, uh, who worked for Margaret Thatcher in Number 10, as Edwina was saying. And then after she relieved him of his services, he went on to write a series of best-selling novels, including House of Cards which has turned into a hugely successful TV series, both here and in the US. So I caught up with Michael and I asked him about how he felt about providing an example for politicians thinking of picking up a pen. Uh, well, in part, I, I hope that it's a bit of a compliment. You know, uh, I've had a lovely time, a wonderful life uh, with my writing about politics, writing novels, uh, fiction about politics. And uh, if that's helped inspire people, I'm very, very happy. Um, but the truth is... Uh, Writing novels is very, very hard. It's, uh, it's not something you can just do. It's much harder in some ways than writing nonfiction, writing history. Uh, you need to transport yourself into another world to write fiction because you're creating another world. Uh, and yet politics, if you're involved in any way in politics, politics insists on dragging you back into uh, the world of reality or political reality. And, you know, uh, you see so many politicians who have written, or political advisors who've written one, two books, and then they realize that they can't actually keep this up because they're too busy doing politics. I, I had the, uh, the, the great fortune of being kicked out of politics almost by Maggie, <laughs> um, Mrs. Thatcher for a, a while, and that gave me the time to not only write House of Cards, but to really start on that new career. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it has its ups and downs. It's not all milk and honey, I tell you. Uh, well, let's go back to that then, because you you were a close advisor to uh, Margaret Thatcher. You were, what, chief of staff in the Conservative Party in the in the 80s. It, remind people how it was that, that Margaret Thatcher helped you on your way to being a novelist. Oh, well, I, I was with her. I started working with her when she was leader of the opposition. Uh, I lasted 13 years, I think, or, or more with her, uh, which was longer than most. Um, I, uh, I, I remember Norman Tebbit. When I became chief of staff of the party, I asked Norman Tebbit, I said, um, Norman, what's this job chief of staff all about? And he, he said, well, lad, he said, uh, there comes a time in every war where those who are in charge require that somebody be taken out into a courtyard put up against a wall and shot. He said, your job is to find the body uh, until the time comes when you will be the body. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, he was absolutely right. 
And Maggie and I had a, a great talking. She, look, she fell out with almost everybody. Uh, uh, and I had lasted longer than most. And I, I'm not going to, uh, she was, well, she, she was really horrible to me, uh, but I'm not going to complain about that because she had given me a ringside seat on, on, on history uh, for all those years. And she taught me so much. And I, I still happen to think she was a, a, uh, a wonderful prime minister for particularly for the first six years of her uh, time in office. Um, but, you know, Matt's, Great people, in my uh, my understanding, great people are very rarely nice people. They're very rarely settled people. They are driven. They are obsessive. Uh, that's what drives them on to be great people. When the rest of us would be sitting down having a cup of tea and uh, you know chatting about the football or something, uh, and, and and so you expect to have a very turbulent journey to become a great person. Uh, you know, you think of Winston Churchill was driven by internal demons. Margaret was driven by internal demons of her childhood. Napoleon and so forth. You name it. And these are not normal people. But that's why it makes it fascinating to write about them. And writing fiction, you can sometimes dig much deeper into those individuals than you can simply by reporting what is what is known. Uh, fiction creates a new world. It digs into things which are surmised, which you imagine. And that's what makes it so much more colourful at times. And so in, in 1989, she, after, like you said, you did very well to have survived as long as you did when so many others uh, didn't. Um, and you, at what point did you think, I might have a go at writing? Is it something you'd always wanted to do, but politics had, had come along and given you a, like you said, a, a front row seat on essentially history unfolding? Or was it something you thought, well, I'll give this a go, it might not be any good? At what point did you did you think, well, I'm going to have a start of a go at this thing, which obviously then became House of Cards? Matt, it was, I hate to say this because I should pretend that I'm terribly serious about everything I do, but it really was a joke. Um, look, I've just been beaten up by Maggie, and it really was a turning point in my life. And I was thinking about, you know, uh, I was away on holiday, uh, and uh, my first holiday in two and a half years. And I was thinking about, um, uh, you know, getting a new job. Uh, uh, Margaret rather insisted on it, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I was going on about uh, away on holiday and going on about a book I was reading. Um, and my wife turned around to me and she said, stop being so bloody pompous, she said. Um, you're going on about this book. And I've come away on our first holiday for two and a half years, not to listen to you, go on and on and on. He said, she said, if you think you can do any better, for goodness sake, go and do it, but stop complaining. So uh, uh, literally with those words of encouragement ringing in my ear, I took myself down to... Uh, the swimming pool with a bottle of wine and a pad and a pencil just to see whether I could write. I had no ambition to uh, change my life. I, I started writing the, the book. I, I, um, uh, I actually spent the, the entire bottle of wine um, just writing two letters uh, because you know, stuff was going on in my mind. I was bruised. I was perhaps a little confused. Uh, my life was changing after terrible falling out with with margaret and <coughs> excuse me um and 
I, I sat down, I finished the bottle of wine, and all I had on my pad was two letters, F-U. Um, clearly, I should have been in therapy. And, uh, <laughs> but it was my therapy, right? It was my therapy. Uh, and it was stirring something up inside me. It was like I, I'd ventured into a new world inside me, walked through a door, and there I was uh, having sort of fun. And so I came back the next day with another bottle of wine, and uh, F.U. became Francis Urquhart. Uh, and when it went to America, it became Frank Underwood. And F.U. became his character. So it, it all really started with being beaten up by, by Maggie. And I was just having fun doing this. <laughs> I, I, look, I never, ex I never expected even to finish the book. It was one of those things you do on holiday, like a game of cards almost. Um, I never expected to finish it. I never expected to publish it. I thought if I did finish it, it'd be one of those things sitting on my bookshelf where, you know, grandchildren or great grandchildren might come and before they threw it away, say, oh, you know, uh, this is this is what he did in a spare moment. I had no idea it was going to change my life, transform it completely. It did. Uh, I, I've had over 30 years of extraordinary good fortune uh, in, in enjoying the 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 rewards but also the very very hard work and the ups and downs of being a writer of fiction and as I say I owe it all to Maggie so no complaints from me. <laughs> Michael Dobbs there we're talking about political novels uh, hearing from the author Michael Dobbs of course who created House of Cards he's explained his bruising experience of working for Margaret Thatcher about how it helped him write the book so I asked him about what happened when that novel was then turned into a TV show for the first time in 1990. When the BBC said that they were going to do the uh, broadcast, the uh, first season of House of Cards in November, uh, November of 1990, I said, you, 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 you can't do this. And they said, well, why not? And I said, because of the leadership crisis. And they said, what leadership crisis? <laughs> now, this was February of the year. Uh, but, you know, I, you know, I was reading the runes and realised that Maggie was in deep, deep trouble. And November was the time when leadership crisis sort of seemed to happen in those days. So um, they dismissed my, my suggestion as being um, uh, irrelevant. Uh, and then, of course, October comes, the crisis er begins to erupt. And they sat and stared at their telephone. Uh, expecting the great powers that be at the BBC to call them and say, you must take this off because this is far too embarrassingly uh, uh, timely. And we don't want to be seen to be interfering with the <laughs> process of electing a new prime minister. Fortunately, no telephone call was made in either direction. The thing went out uh, the very week that uh, Margaret was forced to resign and with that wonderful opening scene of Ian Richardson uh, staring at the silver-framed photograph uh, of Margaret, and as he puts it face down on the table, says, "Nothing lasts forever." Oh, what a what a beautiful line! Not my line. Um, Andrew Davis wrote that, the uh, the the, the uh, adapter, uh, and coming out in the very week that Margaret resigned, uh, everybody thought that. I was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs>
And it's interesting because politics, I know, having spoken to publishers, you know, politics books do not sell in the way that if you woke up about, I don't know, Nazis or dogs or golf or, you know, and all of that. Um, uh, uh, but yours clearly did, partly because it, it captured the mood, partly because you were, uh, you, your, your credentials and you'd been so close to, to power. But it sort of slightly encourages other people uh, to follow you. Do you think politics still sells? I mean, I also wonder whether it's it's part part of the appeal of politics as a setting. Is it's quite timeless? You can still watch old episodes or uh, of House of Cards or reread re your books. And there's, you know, apart from the occasional big mobile phone or whatever, it's still just people in suits in Westminster plotting against each other. It's not affected by, you know, changes in in technology or society that, that other areas might be. I wonder what do you think about politics, particularly as a place to set to set books. Well, in a way, it is wondrous because who could think of a richer backcloth for a novel uh, and a story than Westminster, the, the, uh, the, the great pomp and ceremony, the fantastic uh, history of it, the dark corners of it that will know exist, and these, a cast of characters that you couldn't really invent. The trouble is too many people think politics rather than novel great entertainment uh you you'll know for in, you, you may have noticed for instance that in in the house of cards uh, francis politics is not associated with uh, francis urquhart is not associated with any politics as such whatsoever <laughs> no policies not even a party he he's not in the uh, in in the book identified with with the, the conservative party although you could work out that it probably was but you don't shove politics as such in the face it's all about personal yeah, drama it's all about the ups and downs of great characters driven to extremes and great heights of ambition and great depths of despair and cunning and that's what makes entertainment it just happens to be set in a political environment yeah. so if you can step back from look i'm a I'm a spad or whatever it happens to be. I've been secretary of state for X or Y or Z. And so therefore I know uh, how politics works. That's not what people are interested in. They're interested in the flesh and the blood and the sex and, and the betrayal <laughs> and the ambitions. Uh, just in the same way as we, look, I, I stole the inspiration from William Shakespeare. Uh, he wrote Julius Caesar, the most powerful man in the world who was chopped, hacked, stabbed to death on the steps of his own Capitol building by his best mates, who then went off to kill each other. I mean, it's an extraordinary story, not a piece of politics in it. You don't know. <laughs> Nobody was what... arguing about planning reform in, in Julius Caesar, were they? That's the key thing. <laughs> the, like trouble, the trouble some... is, Michael, that some, some people since, uh, uh, people in politics, have slightly taken your, your tales of betrayal and backstabbing and conniving and Machiavellian plotting, uh, uh, rather than entertainment, but as a manual. And particularly, the you know, whoever is the chief whip of the day, and I probably think of Gavin Williamson more than ever with the, with the whip on his desk and his tarantula or whatever it might be. Um, the, people seem to think that Francis Urquhart is someone to be... Um, admired, emulated. Have you have you ruined politics with your books? Probably, it's all my fault. <laughs> um, but I, I have to tell you, Matt, that the uh, I, I think I managed to get away without upsetting anybody in House of Cards. I thought when I was writing it, 
uh, that actually this might be the end of my time in politics because everybody would be so offended by it that uh, I would I'd be cast out and the door slammed behind me. Uh, far from it. The only people I know to have been offended by uh, House of Cards is those politicians who have come up to me over the years and said, uh, look, this, this Francis Urquhart chap, that's me, really, isn't it? You know, you based him on me. And I had to say, look, I'm terribly sorry, old chap, but no, it wasn't you. Uh, <laughs> and they've got away crestfallen and deeply upset. <laughs> That's uh, probably yeah, but uh, but then they go off and then they go off and emulate it. You see, that's the thing, Michael. Um, just looking into the into the future, then, um, because it is so timeless, could we ever see a a, a British remake of the of House of Cards? Do you think? Do you think because people are so interested in politics now, political engagement over the last, if there's been one upside of the last few years, is it is it people know more about how politics works? Would it ever come back? Do you think? Um, I think. Whether we make a we do a remake of the original version of House of Cards, the, the basic story, um, I'm not so sure. I think I mean if I if I am ever going to go back to House of Cards and and redo it, do a sequel, for instance, I it would have to be brought up to date because politics has changed in the last thirty odd years since it was written, uh, and I think I could follow the basics of it, but it would need new characters, and I think one of the things that it would need it would be much younger characters because nowadays it, it, politics used to be the, the 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 empire of old farts really you know people who in the <laughs> 40s 50s 60s um 70s perhaps who had had done it all and clambered to the top of the greasy pole uh, i think power has shifted and for instance you talk about spads i think spads some spads have far more power nowadays than uh, they ever had and sometimes more power than their ministers. That's one of the things that I think has gone wrong in politics. Uh, but that would be, I think, the thing to focus on. Uh, make make it all encompassing and not only have the old traditional politics there, but also the young, the thrusting, the, 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 the passionate, the uh, fantastic young characters that you do get around Westminster. So uh, I mean, I'm, I've got ideas buzzing in my mind whether I shall ever be allowed the time to put them down, I, I don't know. But yeah, um, just like uh, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar has lasted a few hundred years, uh, I think there might be life in um, in House of Cards yet. Mr. Michael Dobbs with a tantalising hint that Francis Urkel or his uh, descendants could make a comeback. It's Matt Jolly on Times Radio talking about the political novel. It's not just politicians who'll have a go at writing, though. Some of Westminster's journalists have tried it too, including ITV's political editor Robert Peston, whose novel The Whistleblower is set in 1997. It's centred around the political of a broadsheet newspaper. Where does he get his ideas from? Well, I asked him why he wanted to do it. I first wrote a really bad thriller. At least I think it's really bad because I've never had the courage to <laughs> look at it again in my 20s. So there was always something at the back of my mind about wanting to have a go uh, and it was like you know so many mad projects in the last year or two for so many different people it was a lockdown project I mean we were you know we'd been trapped in the hell of Covid confined to our homes and uh, I just thought I'd have a go I had no idea whether it would be publishable but I started loved the process 
of not having to check facts, just basically <laughs> writing what I wanted to write. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the reason I set it in Westminster and I set it in 1997 uh, in the run-up to that rather important general election um, was because I thought if I was being arrogant enough to think I could write fiction, I, I better at least ground it somewhere that I knew very well, because maybe that would take some of the risk out of the project. So, you know, that's why I wrote about politics and, and skullduggery. There's also quite a lot of business in this book. And as you know, you know, I was a sort of business reporter for quite a few years as well and got to know some very murky people in that world. And so I just decided I was going to write about the characters, the sociopaths that I've encountered. And, <laughs> and, that, 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 and the fruit of it is, is this book called The Whistleblower. And how much of it is sort of directly sort of autobiographical? Are there real things that happen to you or people around you in the lobby that have made it into the book? Well, certainly the I, I describe the lobby, uh, you know, the 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 group of journalists who had this privileged pass in the past of Westminster. Uh, I, you know, I, it's, it's a lobby that was the lobby in the late 90s. It was very incestuous back then. It probably still a bit incestuous, but not l remotely in the way that it was. There's lo there was lots of skullduggery, uh, you know, journalists ganging up in a sort of secret <laughs> way to take down, you know, in, in this case, it was... Uh, Prime Minister John Major. John Major doesn't feature in the in the book, by the way, but I'm just describing yeah. what the lobby was like at the time. There was a herd thing, you know, the, the, uh, about what the story was on any particular day, and I wanted to capture the sort of murkiness and the uh, incestuousness of uh, that uh, sort of semi-guild, as it were. Yeah. Um, and. Um, so that's all, all, all true. Do you set in any uh, schools? Do you bump off anyone that you didn't like from back then? <laughs> Secretly, only you know, only you know who they are. Well, well, uh, it, not quite actually. Uh, in the no, not, 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 not really. I'm not somebody weirdly. So I, I, I find it impossible to hold grudges, even against people who've been <laughs> horrible to me. So there, there isn't really any, any score settling um i mean there are every character including the lead including the lead character uh, is an amalgam of different people who i encountered so i tried i tried to give it an authenticity not by modeling um you know a character on just one person um because i thought that was a bit too obvious it isn't a sort of straightforward way more my clay in that sense but you know, I included both characteristics and indeed real incidents involving um, sort of people who I encountered uh, at the time. I had a slightly embarrassing um, uh, conversation the other day uh, with a member of the current government who said to me, that's me, isn't it? And uh, I said, well, it depends really how you feel about that character. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs, and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.